The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. Our reading this morning is taken from Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Robin Wall Kimmerer is a botanist and she's a member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. She's a professor of environmental biology at the State University of New York of Environmental Science and Forestry, and she is the founding director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. Our reading this morning is the beginning of the story of Sky Woman Falling. And the author does give a credit to the fact that this story, as she tells it, was adapted from the oral tradition and also from a version told by Joanne Shenandoah and Douglas George in their 1988 book on Sky Woman and Legends of the Iroquois. In the beginning, there was the sky world. She, she fell like a maple seed, pirouetting on an autumn breeze, sky woman. A column of light streamed from a hole in the sky world, marking her path where only darkness had been before. It took her a long time to fall, in fear, or maybe in hope, she clutched a bundle tightly in her hand. Hurtling downward, she saw only dark water below. But in that emptiness, there were many eyes gazing up at the sudden shaft of light. They saw there a small object, a mere dust mote in the beam. As it grew closer, they could see that it was a woman, arms outstretched, long black hair billowing behind as she spiraled toward them. The geese nodded at one another and rose together from the water in a wave of goose music. She felt the beat of their wings as they flew beneath her to break her fall. Far from the only home she'd ever known, she caught her breath at the warm embrace of soft feathers as they gently carried her downward. And so it began. Well, we left Sky Woman. She was being caught on the wings of geese, far from the sky world, the only home she'd ever known, her hand clutching a bundle of we know not yet what. But even the start of her journey is far from over, it turns out. These geese could not hold her for long, the story goes. So we return to the telling. 
So they called a council to decide what to do. Resting on their wings, she saw them all gather, loons and otters and swans and beavers and fish of all kinds. The great turtle, a great turtle, floated in their midst and offered his back for her to rest upon. The others understood that she needed land for her home and discussed how they might serve her need. The deep divers among them had heard of mud at the bottom of the waters and agreed to go find some. Loon dove first, but the distance was too far and after a while he surfaced with nothing to show for his efforts. One by one, the other animals offered to help, otter, beaver, sturgeon. But the depths, the darkness, and the pressures were too great for even the strongest of swimmers. They returned, gasping for air, their heads ringing. Some did not return at all. Soon, only little muskrat was left, the weakest diver of all. He volunteered to go while the others looked on doubtfully. His small legs flailed as he worked his way downward and he was gone a very, very long time. They waited and waited for him to return, fearing the worst for their relative. And before long, a stream of bubbles rose with a small, limp body of muskrat. He had given his life to aid this helpless human. But then the others noticed that in his paw was tightly clenched, and when they opened it, that there was a small handful of mud. Turtle said, here, put it on my back. I'll hold it. Sky Woman bent and spread the mud with her hands across the shell of the turtle, moved by the extraordinary gifts of the animals. She sang in thanksgiving and then began to dance, her feet caressing the earth. The land grew and grew as she danced her thanks from the daub of mud on the turtle's back, all of the animal's gifts coupled with her gratitude. Together they formed what we now know as Turtle Island, our home. Like any good guest, Sky Woman had not come empty-handed. The bundle was still clutched in her hand when she toppled from the hole in the sky world, she had reached out to grab the tree of life that grew there. In her grasp were branches, fruits, and seeds of all kinds of plants. And then she scattered them onto the new ground and carefully tended to each one until the world turned from brown to green. Sunlight streamed through the hole from the sky world, allowing the seeds to flourish. Wild grasses, flowers, trees, and medicines to spread everywhere. And now that the animals, too, had plenty to eat, many came to live with her on Turtle Island. 
This is the story of creation of this world, at least, as Robin Wall Zimmerer came to know and repeat it. And actually, it isn't clear to me if she knew the story as a child or found her way to its truths later, at least this telling of it. But it is clear from listening to her that she knew many of the truths it would teach in her growing up and wandering of the forests and the natural landscape of New York State as a child, where she fell in love with who and what she found there. Botany was and still is her passion. She went on to study it in college and graduate school, but what she encountered in the hallowed halls of academia was such a different relationship to the natural world. Plants were reduced to object, Zimmerer told Krista Tippett in 2015. What was important in academic study was the mechanisms by which things worked, not what their gifts or their capacities were, she would say. They were objects, she said, whereas I thought of them as subjects. And the shift in that worldview was a big hurdle for me entering into the field of science. And it wasn't just science as a discipline that brought with it this different relationship to nature than the one she'd come to know and inhabit. English made objectification too easy. In the English language, she says, if we want to speak of that sugar maple or that salamander, the grammar that we have to do so is to call those beings an it. And if I called my grandmother or the person sitting across the room from me an it, that would be so rude, right? And we wouldn't tolerate that for members of our own species, but we not only tolerate it, it's the only way we have in English to speak of other beings as an it. In Potawatomi, the cases that we have are animate and inanimate. And it's impossible in our language to speak of other living beings as its. And we think of water as alive, of rocks as alive, alive in different ways, but certainly not inanimate. Generally, the inanimate grammar is reserved for those things we human beings have created, by which she means things like pulpits, <laughs> or candles, or trucks. All else has life in it and asks for relationship. Science is afraid, she says, of humans anthropomorphizing nature, but there is something other than seeing something as human that still allows for us to see the personhood of nature or animals, plants. Something, she says, is about acknowledging that these forms have consciousness, have awareness, have beingness, 
In fact, she says science is showing that plants have the capacity to learn and have memory. We're at the edge of this wonderful revolution in really understanding the sentience of other beings. And the value of all this learning, what we're all hearing about, about how plants communicate with each other, how trees warn each other underground of predation, of how they share resources. It isn't just to respect the capabilities of plants more, for instance. The subjecthood of the natural world can also invite us to see ourselves and the mix of life together differently, right? Zimmerer, for instance, admits to having photosynthesis envy. Envy for, as she explains, the ability to take these non-living elements of the world, air and light and water, and turn them into food that can be shared with the whole rest of the world, to turn them into medicine that is medicine for people and for trees and for soil. And we cannot even approach the kind of creativity that they have. Science, she points out, asks us to learn about organisms. Traditional knowledge asks us to learn from them. In the story of Sky Woman, the animals were older than the first human who arrived helpless, remember? They were her teachers. And Zimmerer would say, they still are. For instance, Zimmerer is an expert on mosses. She's written a book about them. It's, it's actually one that inspired the novel, The Signature of All Things, that Elizabeth Gilbert wrote about a botanist. And Zimmerer asks for this kind of attentiveness and relationship. And she shows the way to it in the way that she talks about the gifts and the teaching of mosses. She writes, an example of what I mean by this is their simplicity in the power of being small. Mosses become so successful all over the world because they live in these tiny layers on rocks, on logs, and on trees. They work with the natural forces that lie over every surface of the world. And to me, they ex are exemplars not only of surviving, but of flourishing by working with natural processes. Mosses, mosses are superb teachers about living within your means. But, but even more than that, they don't grab resources efficiently. They give more than they get, she writes. Mosses build soil. They purify water. 
they make homes for this myriad of all these cool little invertebrates that live there. They are just engines of biodiversity. They do all of these things, and yet they're only a centimeter tall. The mosses challenge us if we let them to reconsider our role in the web of life. If we let them. I remember a friend once talking about when she got glasses for the first time. She was a small child. And when she put them on, she was standing outside in her front yard, and she was flabbergasted. The trees, they had all these wild, finely shaped green things on them. She realized she'd always heard about leaves, but never understood what people were talking about, not really when they used that word, not until life burst into focus with that new set of eyes. Reading Robin Wall Zimmer feels a bit like that for me, about seeing the world through her eyes, this world that comes into a new kind of focus with new texture and understanding and appreciation, all the different relationships that are part of this way of being in and in relationship to the world, and the power of it. Zimmer alludes to the ways that this way of seeing and being in relationship is reinforced in her life by a whole lot of cultural practices and norms, including, not insignificantly, of course, the story, the foundational story of Sky Woman falling and how the world began. Nature as a thing, no, not as a thing to be used up. Nature not as a thing to be judged simply by what it has done for us lately, or the joy it's even given us, or the price we can put on it. Nature, as this whole world that pre-existed, that caught us, that gave their lives to make a place for us, that were our first teachers, our first family, our forever family, as this place that Sky Woman brought her gifts and with muskrats, sacrificial mud, and on the back of the turtle, struggling to hold her because she needed a place to stand. Together they danced with sun and mud and creative commitment into making a world where they could all find a better life together. And I think about that in comparison to some of the foundational stories that live and haunt in the corners of our own culture. Our first hymn this morning, I invite you, if you weren't 
sort of aware of the words in this way to go back and read them. It's, it's this attempt to rework the creation story that's in Genesis. And whether we are Jewish in background or Christian in background or Muslim in background or not, that story still lives and breathes and haunts our culture and its ethics, right? And another version of the story, other than the the hymn lyricist trying so valiantly, as so many of us are, to recast even that story so it lives differently in our consciousness and invites us differently into the world. It can also be, and I think has also been read as this story of the creation of a perfect garden out of which we are cast out into the current imperfect world which when we are cast out is marked by suffering and hardship in a chain of events initiated by the snake, the danger and betrayal, the bite of an apple, a world that is dangerous and to be distrusted, all the implications of that story when it lives in the recesses of our brain, in the history of our puritanical culture, right? Because I think when we pay attention to stories, we have to realize no story that we tell is without moral content or implications. I was even thinking in reflecting on this, how the way we tell the story of evolution has a subjecthood and a choice about where the emphasis gets told, right? So those who think that they're telling an objective scientific story, which I have incredible respect for, also need to listen for the way we tell that story, right? Is it about competition and survival of the fittest? Hmm, that is a piece of it. Is it about nature with its amazing ability to adapt and mutate? infinitely? Does that get us off the hook for breaking our own destructive habits? Our stories and the way we tell them it's clear are not saving us. It's clear not just our habits and our laws, but maybe our stories need some challenging and some creative changing in the way we tell them. We may need to actually uproot some of them, the ways they've been planted in us, be more aware of that, find maybe some new eyes for seeing and telling them so that we can see maybe what is actually more of the real texture of our place and relationship with the world bring it into focus. And most of us, those of us who are not from communities who own the story of Sky Woman falling as their own, we can't just take that story. But we have to find ways to tell versions of our own. The ones that speak with love and respect and mutuality about our place and the order of things. No, 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 not things. The order of persons.
of life. And then piece it together ourselves as this sort of religious venture, salvific venture that we are engaged in, need to be engaged in. Well, may the ways in which we do that, or maybe the ways in which we're already doing that, be blessed and bring this story of life and relationship to life and personhood and relationship to the personhood of plants and animals and landscapes. May they be stories that are grounded in connection and reciprocity. The way Daniel's is of the woods, if you listen to his reflection today, the woods that catch and hold him through the uncertainty and upheaval of pandemic. That then calls him and all of us to hold them too. So, blessings to us in this restorative, life-giving journey. I grew up in northern Delaware, a few miles from President Biden's house. If you know what the suburbs far outside of New York or Washington, D.C. look like, that's the general idea. Classic four seasons, pretty rainy. In the summer, the landscape is very, very green compared to California. I spent much of my summers in that nature and humidity. I played tennis, went to day camp at state parks, and mountain biked. Every year, about 10 families from my Unitarian Universalist church would take a long weekend camping together in the Poconos Mountains north of Philadelphia. We would enjoy nature and the power of water in all of its forms. We swam in the lake, went whitewater rafting down a nearby river, and inevitably, we would experience pouring rain at least one evening of the trip. We would huddle under tarps and canopies, playing card games, and run to the bathhouse when a moment of lighter rain came. One of my earliest childhood memories is when I was four, waking up in the middle of the night to a flooded tent. We were one of the last families to arrive, and so we had last pick of campsites, and it turned out that if it rained hard enough, water would drain right through our tent. And I have many fond memories of enjoying an unusual degree of freedom for my age, those weekends in the wooded mountains. All of the kids would travel in a pack, with the older kids adding some degree of responsibility to the mix. And we could wander down to the lake without our parents, swimming under the watch of lifeguards, and playing frisbee on the beach after it closed. 
in a decade living with the Bay Area's lack of significant seasonal change, I really didn't miss the East Coast. I was happy to trade the novelty of a new season for easy access to both hills and ocean, and I appreciate being able to walk or take the bus wherever I go without having to deal with weather worse than the occasional rainstorm. But when the pandemic hit last year, the lure of the East Coast slowly grew. Originally, we had the thought that my partner and I should move across town to afford a bigger place than the one-bedroom apartment that we were now spending all of our time in. Then we had the passing fancy of what if we moved back to Delaware. But we dismissed it. Until we came back around and ended up making it happen, moving back into those same woods where I grew up. And it was lovely. We lived in Delaware through every season, starting with the humidity of the end of last summer, through the yellows and oranges of fall, followed by the chill and occasional snow of mid-Atlantic winter, and then the glory of spring. We relearned how warm 50 degrees and sunny can feel when it's early March. I don't think of myself as someone with a deep spiritual connection to nature. And I feel very at home in San Francisco after my decade here. But there was something very comforting about being back in those woods, reimmersed in the climate and landscape where I lived my first 18 years. In such an uncertain time, the feel of the rhythm of the seasons was comforting and familiar. And when the world around me was so dynamic, the feel of the air changing, the color of the leaves progressing, the snow slowly melting, the plants re-emerging in spring. It encouraged me to be mindful as I took my dog out for walks. There was always something new to notice. Now, I am back in San Francisco, experiencing my first California autumn since 2019. And I am once again appreciating the novelty and the feel of this season in my new home. I never used to think of autumn being a season in San Francisco, but the abrupt shift from Monday's heat to Tuesday's cool weather felt autumnal. And once again, the novelty is prompting me to be mindful of the little details of how the air feels and how the sunlight looks. As I rebuild my San Francisco habits in this new and uncertain world, I am once again finding comfort and an increased feeling of settling in as I ride the waves of the seasons.
The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.